0: The March issue of Velo News Magazine is on newsstands now. We have a great image of Colin Strickland, Dirty Kansas winner, on the cover because this issue is all about gravel and off road racing. And I want to talk to you about a feature we have in there that I'm really excited about. Ashton Lambie, uh, former world record holder in the individual pursuit and one of the country's best track racers, uh, is also a longtime gravel racer. And Ashton, learned about a month ago that he was not going to qualify for the 2020 Olympics. It was a really big disappointment for him. And so he went on a bikepacking trip across the UK to reflect on the disappointment to think about his career to sort of put it in context of what he was doing on the bicycle and he wrote a really interesting personal essay and personal journey about uh, personal essay about that journey and we have it in the uh, march issue of bella news i recommend everyone check it out it is a great essay on disappointment setback but also adventure set against the backdrop of this bike packing trip from Edinburgh in uh, Scotland to Derby in Northern England by Ashton Lambie. It's out in the gravel issue. That's the March issue of Bella News Print Magazine on newsstands now. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Uh, welcome back to the Bella News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here coming to you from a snowy and very cold uh, Monday morning in Boulder, Colorado. How snowy, how cold? <laughs> so snowy that they had to cancel the Old Man Winter Rally The gravel race that was trying to open the uh, 2020 gravel season here in Boulder. We were in Lyons. The racers were ready to go. The snow was falling. And then about 15 kilometers into the race, the whole thing got canceled. I was out there. We have some great images on the website. I suggest you check it out. But it was definitely a wise decision. Um, On this week's episode of the podcast... The second half of the show, we're going to hear from gravel racer Amity Rockwell, who was the queen of Dirty Kansas this past year. Amity and I sat down on the eve of the race to talk about gravel racing, her career, and a lot of her thoughts on ways to grow women's cycling and specifically gravel racing. I think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation with Amity. But before we get to Amity Rockwell... We need to talk about road bike racing in South America, in Europe, and abroad. And I am really excited to bring a new contributor onto the Velonews podcast, a guy who's going to be contributing a lot to Velonews.com. His name is James Start. He's an American. He lives in France. He's been reporting on cycling for decades. If you've read Bicycling Magazine, if you've read Peloton, you've probably read his work, seen his photos. James Starr is coming to us from his apartment in France. Uh, James, welcome to the News podcast.
1: Hey, Fred. Thanks. Uh, really great to, to to be here with you. Uh, yeah, I saw those pictures of, of the uh, of the, the the race in the snow. It was amazing. It looked like a lot of fun, actually. It kind of looked like, you know, I don't know, a cross between a sleigh ride and, well, I'm not quite sure what, but it did look like fun. It started, it started here, it got canceled. Um, and it sure was a Strange sight because I just got back from Argentina, uh, where I was at the the uh, the Vuelta Chiquista of San Juan, which is really a great race. It's the second time I've done it, fifth time I've been down in uh, in Argentina for some of those races, and uh, it's a he- heck of a way to get get off, uh, get the season off to a uh, start. Even though it's uh, very a very far cry from what I was seeing up there in Colorado.
0: Wait, so they didn't have a snowy stage at the Vuelta San Juan? No, no fat bikes, no gravel bikes.
1: No, even though they have a climb that finishes on what they call the Alto de Colorado, uh, there was no snow up there. And we were in the foothills of the Andes at over 2,500 meters. Uh, It got a little chilly at night, but no snow.
0: So, James – there's a lot of awesome storylines that came out of the Vuelta San Juan this year. It was won by Remco Evenepoel. This is his first stage race victory as a world tour rider. Fernando Gaviria looks like he's firing on all cylinders. And then there's just the culture of South American racing, what races like this and the Tour of Colombia mean within the global cycling sphere. Let's pick these off one by one. Let's start with Remco. You know, the last year I was at the UAE Tour, Remco was the reigning junior world champion and he was the only guy at the UAE tour who needed almost like a police escort to keep all of the belgian journalists away i feel like every cycling journalist in all of belgium went to the uae to follow remco um what was the scene like around remco with the uh, the belgian journalists and the media this year
1: well um it's funny you say that it's i've seen him twice now i saw him at the uh, at the uh uh, the Quick Quickstep camp in Calpe a couple of weeks, well, about a month ago now, and then down here um, in, in South South America uh, at the camp. Well, it was kind of like what you described him. Mean, he is a huge, huge name, um, even though he's, he was only 19 years old at the time. He turned 20 while he was in Argentina. At Argent in Argentina, it's a, a lot more mellow. I, I really love um, the the racing down there. I like I like these early season races uh, in faraway places. People are mellow. Uh, often we're all in the same hotels. Uh, and in South America, there's not a ton of journalists. There was about three or four Belgian journalists and a few few of us other language uh, people. Um, so it was it was you know comparatively mellow, but he is a huge name. I mean already I'm getting interviewed by Belgian reporters on you know how big is Remco in America or how big is Remco in France. And I've been observing him for a little bit while because he was at the Grand Prix of Quebec in Montreal last year as well, where I was uh, a photographer. And he's an amazing cat. I mean, the guy, it was 19 then. He's, like I said, just 20 now. He speaks, I don't know how many languages. And he is already so savvy when it comes to the press. Now, this comes probably from the fact that the guy has been a star uh, already in another sport. I mean, he was like in the high power junior uh, football program uh, looking to be on the national. I think he was on the national team. Um, and, you know, was really on a career path to be a football star in Belgium until what three years ago when he got on a bike um so already you know dealing with the press and stuff like that he's had a lot of experience and um he really knows how to handle uh handle it well he can flip between different languages he's very quick on the draw with responses uh you know like example um somebody said you know because he's going to be doing the tour of italy the giro and and he said well you think you're ready for a five-week race and he just said well i don't know ask me in five weeks when it starts you know i mean right back at him Great answer, a great quote, and uh without thinking, I mean did not miss a step. So the guy's very savvy. He's he's got all the makings of of a future great. Is he the next Eddie Mercks? That's a question people are asking, and people are already asking me. Who knows? Um he's got more talent than just about anybody we've seen at this age that's this young on the bike. I mean the guy's what, three years on the bike. Uh if if that. And um and he to have already won races like San Sebastian, uh you know, pretty amazing. But uh, a three-week tour winner were – I just – you know, I think the story is still yet to be written. I think he could be, but, you know, we've seen a lot of people, with, you know, just brimming with talent that uh, don't make it to three weeks or make it – get one win and uh, and then stagnate, you know, whatever. So – um but I think we're going to have a lot of fun with that guy. You know, and he's up there with uh, uh, another pool, you know, Matthew Vanderpool. Uh, it's just one of these great talents, and you know that for the next – decade or 15 years, you're going to be covering this guy. So that's, uh, that's exciting.
0: I think that's really poignant and exciting for the Belgians themselves because obviously we lived through the Tom Bonin era just a few years ago and saw the end of it. And you, know, you know, Tom Bonin was a big star because – Yes, he won a lot of races, but also he was so charismatic and so marketable and so good-looking that he cut through the international cycling press. He wasn't just a Belgian hero. And I remember the last few years of his career, everyone was on this hunt for the new tampon. And, oh, is it Ties Benut? Is it Guillaume Van Kirsburg? Is it these guys who are talented, but maybe they just didn't quite have – The level of winning or the personality or whatever. And here's this kid, Remco, who, like you said, I mean, obviously, he's very talented. He's going to win lots of races. He's not a cobblestone guy like Bonin, but he has the personality. He's marketable. He's good looking. He's international. I mean, I just see him as the big international star That the Belgians have been looking for since like 2012, 2013. And the fact that he's already winning these big races at age 20, to me, is just insane. So he wins the overall at Tour de Saint-Louis, and he does so in fairly dramatic fashion. I mean... You know, we all had our eyes on him going into it, but it sounds like there's this stage. It finishes on the Alto Colorado. Remco has to defend his lead. There's echelons. And then he finds himself caught out. You know, James, take us through the action of this stage when Remco really had to dig deep to win.
1: Well, actually, I'll take it back even a little bit uh, further because I just – when you analyze really the way he raced that race uh, for the whole week – he just, you know, was was such maturity and savvy. It wasn't even funny. All right, so he knew he had to do, to uh, he knew he had to win that first time trial, the only time trial. And the only problem was a major storm came in, major storm, and I mean the so major that the final podium ceremony was canceled. And like uh, Brandon McNulty uh, came by, I didn't even see him. It was just black. I mean black. Um, and these are the conditions that the you know some of these guys were riding against. And you know, uh, I. In all fairness, I think mean, McNulty had, uh, worse conditions than, uh, than, um, Ibitipole. But,
2: you know, he handled
1: it. He won the race. He won the TT like he had to do. And he put in big time on everybody. All of a sudden he's not front. And then, the one climbing day, that's only one. Um, now he had already done very well last year. He's riding for his teammate, Alaphilippe, Philippe, riding up this climb, uh, and still finished, I think, top 10. So we knew he was, he was there for, for it. Uh, the altitude of Colorado is a very strange climb. It's pretty much kind of like 200 kilometers of false flats. Okay. It never gets really hairy steep. It's just this big power grind. But all of a sudden, you're at 2,000 plus meters. The oxygen is no longer there. This is the first time anybody's been going that high that early in the season, except obviously for the South Americans who've been, uh, you know, who are peaked at this point. Yeah. And you got all these South Americans who are just like on fire because this is their Tour de France. And. So it's, 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 it's a climb that is on paper good for him because, you know, he's a good time trialer and it's a power sort of thing. But, uh, you know, his opponents knew, uh, that getting to the foot of that climb has potential to be tricky. And I remember, uh, three years ago when I did this for the first time, well, guess what team just popped it on the flats, on the valley right before the final climb? Quick step. And I remember I was on I was over I was there's a descent before this this big long valley and that takes you to the foot of the climb. And I was kinda of waiting there to maybe get some shots of the guys coming around this turn and I just felt the winds. And I looked down at this long straight road which went on for about seven, eight K, I and mean just straight across the desert. And about thirty seconds before the pack came, I went to my driver, I said, Let's get down there, let's be out ahead of this race because we're gonna have a hard time passing them because this race is gonna break apart as soon as we hit the bottom of this climb. And lo and behold, it did. Uh, I had a great seat. I mean, I was like first moto, echelons all over the place. I mean, the race is exploding behind. And, uh, and I was just sitting there. I mean, Sagan is driving it. Gaviria is driving it. Big name riders are pushing the echelons. Why? Because this one guy, Everett Bowl, got caught in the back. Now, this guy rides for Quickstep, quick the best team in the win. And he got caught out. And he had some apologizing to do the next morning or that night because his teammates made those splits, but he just didn't quite make it. Obviously lack of experience. 20 years old by a couple of days. Learning experience. What really impressed me though was the way he came back. Okay. Obviously he had, he had the best team to bring him back. And his, his team went back. They got him. They just tempoed for, I don't know, 20 K trying to get him as close as he could to the front group by the climb, by the, for the climb. And then he got to the bottom of the time and he just drove it, drove it until he got back to the front group. So the amount of control that he showed on that day, uh, in a situation where most guys would lose three minutes and he came back and stayed on the time of the leaders, I thought was really impressive. Showed amazing maturity. No panic there. Uh, he knew he screwed up. He obviously, um, you know, apologized to his teammates, but at the end of the day, it's all good. You know, uh yeah, a little stressful, but he came out wrong. he came out smelling like roses, and for a twenty year old kid to be able to do that, I was really impressed,
0: yeah, to me, I mean, that was the moment of the race, seeing him <laughs> fight his way back and having to put in a pretty big effort to catch the lead group on the hill was pretty impressive now, another guy who was in that lead group, a guy we've been talking about for several years here on the villain news podcast we've even had him on the show, Brandon McNulty the uh, Junior World Time Trial champion from a few years back, America's up-and-coming stage racer. Uh, Brandon made it into that group, finished third on the stage. I believe he finished fourth overall. This is a huge result for Brandon. Brandon is trying to become a big international stage racer. He has shown glimmers of being able to get to that point. But to me, going up against a field like this this marked a real turning point for Brandon. You talked to Brandon throughout this race. What was your sense for what this race meant for Brandon?
1: Yeah, I know he's, uh, he's he knows you guys well. He, he mentioned that to me. Uh, this is the first time I've actually gotten to meet him. Um, and, one, again, one of the great things about these these kinds of races, we are all in the same hotel, and we're kind of running each other all the time, so you, you get to chat with them a little bit here and there. Um, and I got to spend a little bit of time with him. First, I, I got to spend some time with him before I barely, you know, was still putting the pieces together because I went on the pre-race training ride with UAE, uh, with Gaviria. And at the end of the training ride, uh, Brandon wanted to do some extra miles. So I was in the team car and that's what we did. We, we followed uh, Brandon. He'd been a little bit sick when he got there, just wanted to, you know, put some final touches on his form. So we went out and I got to, you know, talk with the DS, uh, at the team there. Um, uh, Simone, uh, really great guy. And he's like, you know, we really believe in this guy. He he has a huge motor, big potential. Uh, he's a really big sign, signing for us, and he's definitely going to be a player here uh, in this race. Um, you know, they were counting on him, counting on him for the time trial, and um, and he pulled it through. He got fifth in that time trial, and he probably had the worst conditions of anybody out there. It was pretty amazing. And all he said, well, as you, as you you know, you can. We did a piece on him, uh, so you can read. But you know, I loved his response. Well, actually, my legs were probably a bigger problem than the than the winds, because uh, he was coming off of some stomach problems, like like a lot of people down there. Um, and he still popped the fifth place there. Probably would have been on the podium if he hadn't had such bad conditions on that TT. Probably would have not finished on fourth overall, but third. But raised tremendously also on the Alto, uh, the Colorado. Uh, was off the front for a while. You know, really proactive, uh, getting out ahead of it. And racing, raced really smart all week. Uh, had fun mixing it up in the field sprints, leading out Gaviria, learning to do a whole lot of new things out. Very high level now on this team. You know his language skills. Uh, he's not. You know he, he doesn't speak. Uh, he doesn't speak Italian. This is a very Italian-heavy team, but they've clearly taken him right in. He seems to be still right at home. And I think he's going to go places. I was impressed. I was really impressed with the way um, that he raced all week long. New team, first year, uh, first race on his first World Tour team, and he's top five in a major stage race.
0: One thing that continues to impress me too about Brandon is his um, – in these interviews, he still gives credit to the pro-continental team he rode for for a number of years for like kind of shepherding along to this point, with which is rally cycling. We had done a number of stories around Brandon about his decision to go – to stay with a pro-continental American team for a number of years before making the jump to the world tour because he had seen some Americans burn out and heard the horror stories of guys who progressed a little too soon. And he, he knew himself well enough to know – that. He wanted to have a couple of years of uh, dipping his toe in big-time European racing before going full world tour. And now, in these uh, you know these interviews, he'll still say stuff like, "Yeah, well, you know, rally cycling—they they took me along," and I- I've always appreciated that about Brandon. He seems to be very gracious about some of the programs and people who have helped him get to this point. Um, so, James, when, when one thing I love about this race in general is you look at the top ten and. Um, you see you know these World Tour riders and these big names of the European racing, and then you see like Oscar Sevilla, and you see some of these South American riders who we won't talk about at all, all year, but you can tell that this is their World Championships. To me, it reminds me a bit of the Amgen Tour California 10, 12 years ago, where you'd look at the top 10 and you'd see these World Tour guys, and then some of these North American riders who, you know, this was the biggest race on the calendar for them. Um We've seen that play out poorly with this race in the past i would say when some of the south american riders have been busted in the top 10 have been busted for doping but just the the overall topic of this race and what it means to riders in south america what sense did you get um from talking to the riders and the teams and the
1: dss down there obviously uh there's a uh... The you know South American cycling, I think right now is is uh, I think seventy five percent of doping cases are coming out of South America, so they got some issues to handle. But in terms of the racing itself, um, I think these are just great races, and I think they're very important races. A, they're a lot of fun for the Europeans. I remember now I've done this is my second tour of San Juan, but I did three tours of San Luis, which was really a pioneering event. I think that's where the Europeans caught on. I think it was in two thousand ten when. Was a nibbly, you know, came over there and, you know, was really going for it and, and, and going for the win. I think he won it. Um, and, you know, we have a long history of racing in in, in Colombia. Uh, the World Championships were there in in uh, in '95, uh, and uh, and we had the Tour Colombia Colombia back in the '80s. Uh, but it was kind of a very insular affair. Whereas now, they're more. It's more international. You get five or six World Tour teams showing up here, you know, and. I remember oh, five years ago talking to Mark Cavendish, who came a couple times. Um, and he said, these are great races for me because if I'm going down under, that's a world tour race. You got all the Australians who are, you know, full gas. And for me to be competitive down there requires me to dig a whole lot deeper and be in a lot better condition than I want to be in right now. Um, and th- if I do that, then that's going to compromise the rest of my season later on. Uh, so for a lot of different guys in Europe, this is a kind of perfect race. Um, uh, because they can, they can get the, they can get the road miles in, they get that high speed racing in, it's hot, they, most guys like that, unless their stomachs have problems, which we saw with, say, al and quite a few others, actually. Um, that is an issue dealing with, you know, temperature changes and the heat and, and everything. But there's a chance to get in good racing, good training, uh, at a good level without it being already full on world tour. And I think that's, that's the important compromise. And I talked to, uh, Roberto, the uh, the the race organizer, and he said very clearly, you know, uh, I would never go beyond eight, nine, maximum ten World Tour teams here because it's important to keep a balance with the with the with the the uh, continental teams and the South American teams. And for the South Americans, it is a huge window of opportunity. Let's not forget that this, you know, we saw Gaviria, Fernando win three stages here. Well, this, you know, the San Luis race before was the race that opened the doors to the pro ranks for him. It was when he was in Argentina nipping Mark Cavendish and Peter Sagan consistently for stage wins that all of a sudden Quick Step goes, Hey, who is this guy? Let's do some tests on him. Let's get some more information. And within a within months he was signed to Quick Step. And you know the rest is history. He's one of the great sprinters um in the Peloton right now. I think he's gonna have a tremendous season uh as well. So it's a, a huge window of opportunity for uh, for up and coming uh, South American riders, and they know that, so they're 100% gung ho. Um, and you've got the meeting, sort of this meeting of, of different worlds, that uh, I think, by and large, uh, produces great results.
0: Yeah, you mentioned it there, Gaviria, three stage wins, and really a product of. The racing down there. I mean, I still remember when he beat Cavendish in that stage and everyone was like, who is this kid? And they showed photos of him and he literally, he looked like a kid. He had sort of chubby cheeks and a boyish haircut and he, he did not look like the Fernando Gaviria of today. He was so boyish. Um, you snapped some wonderful photos of Gaviria. We put them on the site um, showing this medallion of, um, it was a bust of Jesus Christ in gold um, and I thought it was a really interesting look at a guy who we, you know, we think we know with these riders. We think we know them because of their race report, their race results and the quotes they'll give at the finish line. But just to see this photo of him with his shirt off showing this religious medallion, um, I think it, I felt like it really showed a different side of Gaviria. Now, as someone who got to spend some time with him down there, I mean, what were some of the takeaways, some of the things you learned about Gaviria from your experiences around him?
1: It, it was really nice. Uh, 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 I wouldn't say hooking up with him again, but it's uh, so, a like last time I was in San Juan, we were, our rooms were next to each other, and he would be like sitting in the hallway, working, doing his computer, listening to his music, and you know we just kind of like say hi, right? And then we'd run, and this time again, we'd be running to the elevators and you know seeing him. And he's one of the most mellow guys I know. Well, you know, most cyclists are pretty mellow, right? Most cyclists are pretty human. Um, if I've been doing this sport for this long, it's because I really, really find cyclists in general be pretty unassuming I mean it's such a hard sport they're getting beat so many times, even the biggest names that there's a certain uh just a humility that, that I think most of us uh are forced to, to to have and he's a perfect example of this I mean he's just like mellow happy go lucky guy I mean, he's still really young i don't i think what is he twenty four uh twenty five max I and mean, he's still super young, and obviously um you know, uh, obviously he's quite a believer, but, uh, really, uh, just a mellow guy. And one day I was in there. So we had this, uh, I think this stage, stage six that was in this auto drum, this, uh, race car track. And they were in the teams. Each had a paddocks, you know, and, uh, so that hence the, all the metal doors and stuff, which I thought were pretty great for a background for a photo. And all of a sudden his shirt was off and I'd already photographed him the day before inside his little minivan. And he was putting on his number and he never showed it on he had this big medallion. And so I saw it again and I was just like, you know, what is that? And he said, I started explaining that he, you know, had this handmade and, um, and, you know, it was very special to him. And I said, and, then, you know, I said, but yeah, but you don't wear it during the race. He said, yeah, I do. Uh, I said, actually, I have a smaller one that I use during the race, but it's broken. So this is what I've been wearing. And it's like the idea of racing without, uh, one of these medallions was not foreign to him. So he had this huge medallion, and I said, "Man, that, that's that's a serious piece, and I think it really looks great. I'd love to take a, a picture of you with it, just you and you know, no team shirts, no jerseys, just that." And he's like, "Yeah, no worries, whatever." And so as soon as he got his number on, we went over to this wall, and there he was, you know. And um, he's obviously doesn't have any baby fat on; him. he's fit, uh, he's cut, and uh, he's a really good-looking guy. And I just I really love that portrait; it was one of my my favorite pictures. From the whole week down there, even though I was on the motorbike and I had great access to a lot of racing pictures, that one I think is going to stand up as in the, the year so as real, a real keeper for me.
0: Yeah, it's on the site right now. Please check it out. The wonderful photo of Fernando Gaviria and his large medallion, which I know when I, when I read the copy and said, wow, he's racing with that thing under his jersey, um, that was pretty impressive to me because just looking at that piece, I was like, that's that's a couple pounds of hardware right there. That's not a, well, an well, insignificant piece.
1: Oh. And I would really, I mean, wouldn't wish on anybody. But if he did a faceplant, that would, like, really hurt. Yeah. Uh, if, they, you know, if he landed or something. It's just, like, it is so big. Um, not that I expect him to be on any faceplants. Um, and he has to get a really good bike camera, so uh, more power to him. But, yeah, just just talking about the weight. Um, but, obviously, it wasn't slowing him down. I mean, that guy is really fast right now. I think he's really hungry. Uh, he came off a frustrating year where he only won six races, uh, which for somebody like Averia is really pretty meager but i think he's uh you know a lot of times when these guys switch teams they it takes a little while uh to get the sprint train back up in order he got his friend uh, maximiliano Ruchesi, the uh the argentinian uh lead out his like key lead out guy at quickstep is now with him and he said that's one of the biggest things one of the biggest advantages is having him back with me now because they just have a they're, they're they're like brothers and there's a conference in their uh, from their friendship that goes into their racing and Ricciese is an excellent lead out man, and he just, you know, did the perfect lead outs uh, consistently uh, down there. And I think, uh, I think, I think Kaviri is going to have a very big uh, year this year.
0: Well, James, you yourself have a pretty big year. You're going to be going to a number of races for us at Giro d'Italia Tour de France. We're going to be catching up with you throughout the season at these races and um, hearing your stories from being on the motos and from talking to the riders. And up next for you, you're going to the Tour of Provence, which is a race that we have historically not gone to, but this is a good tune-up race. It's early in the season. There's a lot of up-and-coming riders there. What can you tell us about this race and where it fits into the international calendar?
1: This is another one of my favorite uh, races. Uh, I've discovered it. It's only five years old and I've done the last two editions. The race organizer uh, has a does tremendous races. I mean, if you look at the, uh, if you look at the stage by stage uh, thing, uh, preview or course, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? Uh, just the race route. It's like, wow, this is gorgeous, beautiful racing in the heart of Provence. And I mean, we're going up the to Mont 2 on Saturday. Uh, so, you know, it's pretty epic. Uh, but that's not even the most spectacular stage. The most spectacular stage for me is stage two, uh, where we, um, we go twice over uh, this little road, this little road that's on the cliffs of the Mediterranean called the Route des Crêtes. And this comes, this comes out of, uh, a, it's, 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 on the edge of Marseille. It's between Cassis and La Ciotte. I've ridden it. My cycle, my computer got so confused. It said 49%. It didn't know where it was. I and mean, that's how steep this thing is. Obviously, it's not 49%, but it was like, you know, it is seriously 29% for about 2K. I mean, it is a wall. It's everything that human beings like you or I can do to just stay upright. And they race it twice, and when they get up over that that steep part, then they're just skirting, dancing along the edges and the cliffs of the Mediterranean. It is stunning, and um, so I, I mean, I just on a visual level, I look forward to. I mean, we have race stage starts in Avignon, stages finishing in Aix-en-Provence. I mean, you know, what, what more do you want? This is beautiful racing, and it kind of gets back to the root of great European racing, uh, French racing in particular. Often had has often for decades had a bunch of these small races down in the south of France, and this is kind of uh, coming out of the ashes of the Tour Méd, um, but I think is a better organized and just, uh, just a, I think a better race now. We're gonna have, I mean, we got Pana there, we got Pino there. Uh, I haven't had time to look at everybody, but I know we're getting some teams that you know with the with the cancellation of Tour of Oman. other teams are going to be coming back here. We got at least uh, at least ten. Uh, we got more than that. We got at least a dozen World Tour teams. And a few smaller teams, but it's going to be four days of great racing. Uh, spring you know, permitting, uh, the first you know winter light is breaking into spring light down in Provence. Great lights. Um, it's going to be a beautiful race, and uh, it'll probably produce a great winner. I can't wait. It's really one of my favorites. Well, stay tuned to
0: velonews com for photos, stories, everything from James Start coming from the Tour of Provence. And James, we will be catching up with you again throughout the season. Um, thanks so much for talking to us today about all the racing you've been to.
1: Great. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: My next guest on the Velo News podcast is the reigning champion of the Dirty Kansas 200. It's Amity Rockwell of the Easton... Overland team. Oh, this is gravel racing. Do we really need to say teams or is it more, it's more individual sponsorships, right, Amity?
2: We are a team. We are also individuals. Okay. Um, I think the team word just kind of has a different meaning in the gravel situation.
0: Who's um, on your team?
2: Um, so it's myself. And um, for women, we signed um, Carol Nolan, um, who's a cross racer. And then my good friend, Caitlin Bernstein, mm-hmm. um, who got 10th at CrossNats this year. Um, she's super strong, also from the Bay, um, so we're pretty good friends.
0: And you guys do gravel, cyclocross, mountain bike?
2: I've never raced cross. Um, Caitlin and Carol and I all race mountain bikes and gravel. Hmm. Um. So it's a gravel team. That being said, I think we are all going to mix it up a little this year.
0: So, Amity, I'm not going to lie. When you won <laughs> Dirty Kansas last year, the first thing that I did was Google you. I, uh, you know, I've... I've been following the gravel scene in the last few years, and in the women's side, a lot of the races have been won by some of the familiar names, you know, Allison Tetrick, Rebecca Rush, Amanda Naumann, And you on Dirty Kansas had this great race, and I was not familiar with you. And <laughs> I, I went and I think I listened to a podcast with you to get to learn more about you. And there's this great story that, that blossomed of this person who was very passionate about running, who got into cycling. Found out she had some talents for it. And the thing I, I remember in this podcast interview, you talked about how much you'd love to ride your bike all day long. <laughs> um, take us through this early part of your career, how you went from being a runner to a cyclist, to someone who can ride your bike all day long, to someone who could win Dirty Kanza.
2: Um Yeah, I think honestly, like the main thing that brought me to the finish line first in Kansas was just the fact that I ride far all the time. Like, that's what I love to do, and that's what gets me out there, is these, like, all-day endeavors. Um, And I just don't know that there's a lot of other people out there who are actually going on training rides that kind of simulate that same experience that you have out there like kind of simulate that like mental experience of getting to like mile 150 and being like I only have 50 miles left and that like not seeming like a very big amount at all or like that just being a very manageable thing or like knowing how to like show up to that point feeling good and like with something left and like I don't know um and just kind of you know still excited about that distance (laughs) instead of like oh god what am I in for um but yeah um I guess it's a little different for me coming from running. Um, I generally see running as a much harder sport, all things considered. Um, and when I was a runner, I was slowly starting to get into longer and longer distances. Um, you know, still nothing kind of to the tune of like being out there for, you know, 13 hours or whatever, um, like you do in Dirty Kansas. but farther distances. And with running, I think it becomes, you know, even more crucial to kind of, I don't want to say pace yourself, but, like, calculate exactly how much you need for how long and, like, meter that out. Um, And that's just something I got, you know, very accustomed to doing to the point where it was, like, a little bit of second nature to me. Um, And I just carried all of that over to the bike. Um,
0: How'd you get into cycling?
2: (laughs) Kind of by accident. Um, I'd always done it, like, a little bit here and there for um, cross training. Um, you know, just when I was getting all the, like, inevitable, like, impact injuries from running, you know, like, hip flexors, shin splints, like, you know, things just start to fail all the time, and you're kind of just, you know, on the edge and, you know, do lower impact stuff until, you know, they quiet down enough for you to run again. Um, so the bike was always part of, you know, what I did. Um, it became competitive, um, in a bit of a weird way. Like, I never really sought to... Do this professionally from the get-go um, similar story like was just battling some running injuries um, took a little time off running spent a little more time on the bike and was just kind of in the right place at the right time to where I was living in the Bay Area um, met a lot of like just really really stoked people on bikes um, who you know would plan really neat things and just get you out there and then quickly you know saw the community aspect of it that running doesn't necessarily have as much of um yeah you know got talked into racing i did um our local gravel series the grasshoppers um which have been around for a long time (laughs) longer than the rest of this gravel thing um and man just got sucked in i mean it's incredible
0: (laughs) you know something we have written about a number of times in Vela news regarding female cyclists is the role that a good female cycling community Mm -hmm. has in nurturing young elite athletes. Not, doesn't happen everywhere. A lot of sometimes female elite cyclists come up in communities that are heavily male. There aren't, you know, women's group rides, you know, women's community cycling events, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I mean, you were in the Bay Area. I have to mm-hmm. think that there's a lot of female cyclists there. I mean, what was mm-hmm. your community like, both your racing community and your riding community, to help you get through those early stages of being a cyclist?
2: Um, yeah, it's it's definitely interesting because, you know, we do have so many big names just coming, like, straight out of the Bay. I mean, Kate Courtney is the most obvious one. Um, and then we have Katie Hall, Taylor Wiles, Olivia Dillon. Like, <laughs> it truly is endless, kind of. Oh, Catherine, Catherine Curry is in uh, South Bay. But, um, yeah, Um, that being said, like, our women are incredibly strong and incredibly talented, but there's still just, like, not that many. I just feel like the overall, like, <laughs> talent bar, like, bar is just set a lot higher. Um, So, like, you, you will occasionally, like see those ladies out on the road and stuff, um, or see them out at like the Wednesday group ride or something. That being said, I feel like a majority of the group rides I showed up to, I would be the only woman. Um and for me, like, it was just a matter of just like wanting to be like in it and wanting to be good enough to just hang on these rides and not like be an inconvenience or like <laughs> be off the back the whole time or just like be part of it. And it's like you almost just like get strung out of a necessity out of like just like wanting so badly to be part of it and wanting so badly to be there. And then like when these women show up who you do idolize, like wanting to be able to like hang on for just a little bit longer just to like, you know, see exactly what you're like aspiring towards. Um, So yeah, I mean, all that is really conducive to just getting really good.
0: Mm, I like it. <laughs> I mean, you know, we've, we've all been on the group ride before where it's a bunch of aggressive dudes mm-hmm. and then there's that gal on it who's like super strong and it's like... Um, you know, we, we've had a lot of questions about that, about, you know, what role, if, if there's, you know, female cyclists in a community that has a lot of men in it, like Mm -hmm. what should that relationship look like? And like, what's a positive and helpful Mm -hmm. and, um, conducive towards improvement relationship look like? Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think maybe the Bay Area is like a little better than other places in that, like a lot of those men are very used to strong women showing up and like, (laughs) Showing them what's good. Um, But that being said, like, sure, like, I have had innumerable, like, bad experiences with, like, men on rides who just, like, can't get past the idea of, like, maybe riding behind you for a bit. Or, like, you know, having to, like, sit up halfway up a climb because you're, like, running them into the ground. Like, it it does happen. Men get really aggressive. Um, I don't know that... I mean, we can talk about, like, being progressive all we want and changing things and, like, doing well for the sport, but I think ultimately, um, I don't know. I think the conversation should more be about, like, ways to, like, create that welcoming environment and just kind of, you know, increase numbers because, I mean, I'm sure it's weird for men to, like, participate in a sport that's, like, 90% male at least. Um, I think, like, honestly, a lot of them just, like, don't know like there's just a lack of education and like nothing's really gonna move until like those numbers change um I don't personally have like the solution to it um I will say that's like one of like the main things that like keeps me going when I like start to question it when I'm like why am I you know doing this sport that's you know like majorly male like the men get paid more the men get more attention the men get more press the men like you know get more opportunity but it's like if I'm, you know, even like hollowing out a little bit more space for a woman to come up through it or at least like, you know, have somebody to look up to or like have somebody to kind of like pave a little bit of the way for them in terms of like I don't know, making those group rides, making those events, making those things more accessible, then it's like Sure. It's like, <laughs> you know, a little bit more obvious.
0: There's a lot in that answer. We're going to have to drill <laughs> into um, the first question I have. When you think about a a group ride that is heavily dudes that you've been on, what are the characteristics of a good group ride? Would you say that like a group ride that is conducive to female participation, even if it is heavily male, like what are the, you know, the way that people are riding and talking and treating, uh, you know, especially women on the ride that you feel like are, are conducive to like having a good time as a female rider?
2: Um, Personally, I just don't want to be treated any differently. Um, And, you know, that kind of goes both ways in like, you know, don't try to run me off your wheel when, like, that's not necessary. Or, like, don't try to, like, tell me I don't have to pull when I'm perfectly capable of pulling and, like, want the workout and want to be up there and want to feel like I'm doing something. And then it goes the other way and it's like, you know, if I do come off the back or if I am struggling that day or if, like, you know, I, like, end up having to do my own thing because ultimately, like, it's just too fast or too hard for me or it's like I'm not feeling it, like, do not offer to push me up the hill. Like, (laughs) um, (laughs) I've gotten fairly angry on occasions at that. um, Or, I mean, I guess worst case scenario is when they just, you know, push you anyways. Um, (laughs) And that certainly happened a number of times and I think... I don't know. I do think it's, you know, largely, again, due to just a lack of education, like men just not knowing um, what to do in those situations or like why perhaps what they're doing is somewhat problematic in certain scenarios, like, you know, touching somebody when they don't, you know, ask to be touched.
0: So let's get into the Dirty Kansas. Right. You show up 2019. Do you think of yourself as one of the favorites to win at that point? I mean, when you're on the favorites, starting no. line.
2: Favorites, no way. No? Um,
0: how did you view yourself within the collection (laughs) of other strong women at that race?
2: I talked to some people beforehand. I wasn't like completely off the radar. Um, I kind of like gotten a little bit of a name for myself just locally. Um, And I think it was a CX magazine I was talking to. Um, (laughs) The guy there asked um, kind of, you know what my like goals were. And I was like, goals like top five would be like freaking incredible like <laughs> top five just to like be able to like stand on that stage like Sunday morning like I'd be thrilled um and I was like but ultimately like the year before I'd had a horrible mechanical my shifting didn't work I finished with like two speeds like mid-pack like you know uh 14 hours 15 hours I'm not really sure somewhere in there barely before the sun but like was just so determined to like grind it out and like do the thing that I didn't even care um So I just really, I wanted to have a seamless race. I wanted to have a smart race. I wanted to, I don't know, I guess just, you know, stay on top of things. Mm -hmm. Um, See what I had in me. Um, But no, I did not expect to win. Um, I knew who was there. um, And I didn't, you know, underestimate any of those women. Um, But I had a perfect day.
0: Take us through the day. (laughs) I mean, it's 200 miles, so we could go all day, know, like but, like, time
2: you got. it's been months. What are
0: the <laughs> What are the memories that stick out? Now here it is, like, six, seven, eight months later. Like, what are the the scenes and the memories from that day out there that still seem very vivid to um, you?
2: There's a few. Um, I'm always kind of wary of the rollout. Um, I don't know if you've personally been in, like, a very large gravel race rollout, but it's pretty hectic. Um it's a lot of people everywhere all fighting for a position and like guttering each other. And like, you know, there's the whole washing machine situation going on up front where like you have to really, really fight to like even just stay where you want to stay. Um, I was lucky enough to get a call up. Uh, so that put me in a good position off the bat. Um, that being said, I'm not the best at holding my position, especially, you know, up against these women who have been like racing in like the road peloton for, you know, the last 10, 15 years. Um, there's plenty of those women out there. Um, I remember a point, like, 10, 20 miles into the rollout, we're all still, like, one giant pack. And I was pretty pleased with where I was at that point. Like, mentally, I had just told myself to, like, stay relaxed and, like, you know, try to, you know, keep up with the moves and not be, like, so off the front that I couldn't, you know, see when they were happening. Um But things were kind of getting a little, like, feisty, and Olivia Dillon was right behind me, and she was like, Amity, she's like, either move up or move over. And I was like, oh, shit. I was, like, so scared of her at that point. I was like, oh, no, I'm doing this wrong. (laughs) And this was, like, mile 20 of 200. I was like, already? um... (laughs) But I actually missed the first few moves, um, and it separated, and I was probably, like... 15th woman on the road if that Um, and that's where I rolled through at the first checkpoint even like mile 50 I was maybe like 13th something like that Um, but I I was happy like that's what I remember like most about that race probably is just like how stoked I was to be there which sounds like really cheesy and like I know a lot of people like dread this race and stuff but like I think too like you mentioned a lot of like these rides I go on and stuff like the really long ones like they just kind of put you in a position to just really look forward to like getting out there and like checking off all those miles um, and going places. Um, and I was excited to be there. I just felt, you know, a lot more prepared than I did the year before. I had a really good crew: um, brand manager at Easton, Matt Hornland, and um, a guy from Camelback, Colby Bestore. Um, They were like my crew, and it was just the two of them. And they were so dialed. Like I rolled through, like you know, not really anywhere near the front at the first checkpoint. And they were just, like, really happy to see me. And like, switched my pack, like, handed me a banana, and, like, sent me on my way. Um, and things just, like, I don't know. For, I mean, it's so long. Like, there is a lot that happened. And I actually remember, like, a lot of it really, really clearly. Um, but I just kept my cool. And I stayed super happy. And I drank enough. And I, like, almost stayed enough. Um, <laughs> and the heat affected everybody that day. Um, heat's almost always a factor out there um dealt with some nausea threw up a decent amount <laughs> like I don't know a perfect race at Kansas all things considered is never actually a perfect race it's just a more perfect race um so yeah you know one by one you're like all the people in front of me like had something something happen something come up or you know they just cracked I guess <laughs> I don't know I mean it's so hard especially on the women's side of things, to like know how the race is playing out, Um, especially because ours is just so intertwined with kind of like the back end of the front of the men's race, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So like nobody ever really knows. And you can like hear people on the sides like occasionally when you like roll through or like come out of a town or something, they'll be like, you're number four woman or something. But it's like, do I believe them? Do I trust them? Like, did they see? Did they miss somebody? Like... Honestly, it wasn't even until probably like 15 miles to go that I was like, wait, am I actually like leading this thing right now? And then you're still just like never 100 percent, 100 percent sure until you come to the finish line. And like, you know, everybody's going insane. But I think that's a weird time.
0: I think that's one of the interesting dynamics about the women's race at Kansas. is Like you said, you know, it's the, mm-hmm. top, the, the, the front women are mixed in with the, you know, lead group of men or the second or third or fourth groups of men. Right. men. I
2: mean, with every gravel race. Right.
0: And there's this washing machine effect that goes on. And um, what stands out, though, about your victory is in talking to people about past Kansas, I can't remember. I don't know if there's been a a race where someone was, you know, 14th, 15th. It's like usually the people who have won are, yeah, third, fourth, they're up there, you know. Mm -hmm. And not to say that you weren't up there, but, you know, you did have this amazing, (laughs) like, steady pace wins the race. I mean, did did that alter your your thought about how to actually win Kansas, you know, maybe it's not about starting as strong and, you know, <laughs> killing yourself in the first 50 miles.
2: Yeah. Um, I think, you know, perhaps on a different day it would have worked out differently. Like, if somebody else had just had, like, a brilliant day out there and positioned themselves better than I did and, like, never flatted, then, like, you know, maybe they would have gotten it and they would have been in a better position to do so. Um, something I learned from running, though, is that, like, you have to see, like, the whole race, like, the race isn't won by the person who, like, is the last woman to get dropped out of the front group, and that's what I love about these endurance races, um, that's a large part of what brings me to, like, gravel in particular, as opposed to, like, a different discipline of cycling, is that you do get these, like, extreme distances, um, and, I don't know, I just love that there's so much room to mess up and then so much room to fix it, like, time and time and time again and so many just, like, little, like, learning opportunities. Um, I, I yeah, I mean, I think I, I got a little bit lucky in that, like, things that could be perceived as mistakes, like not being in the front group or, like, not positioning myself as well, just kind of, like, worked out for the better and that I was able to, like, save a lot. And honestly, like... I don't have a lot of numbers from that race. I'm not really like a numbers person. Like I didn't have power on my bike and I wasn't wearing a heart rate monitor or anything. 500 watts. (laughs) But I do, I feel like, I feel like I just got stronger and stronger and stronger as the day went on. And I think, you know, again, that's just like mostly traceable to those long rides and preparing your body to go through that.
0: Um, What are your thoughts on the dynamics in these long gravel races for the women's race where... Um, you know, the women's race is mixed in with the men's race, which is mixed in with the women's race. Um I, I've heard some discussion about, hey, you know, maybe if we want to make this a spectator sport, we need to have different fields or we have to have start them differently to make mm-hmm. it a different dynamic the race. have you thought much about that? What are your what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think I the first reaction I have to that is that gravel is never going to be a spectator sport. Gravel is what it is because it is I think largely a participant sport. Um and I think that's what makes it so special is that like most of the people interested in this thing are actually riding this thing. Um, They're just, you know, at different points in the race and with different approaches and different goals than you. But I think that's what makes it, like, so incredibly special is that it is truly, like, this, like, massive shared experience instead of people just watching somebody who's really good at what they do. It's watching somebody who's good at what they do but also experiencing it from, like, so many different, like, backgrounds and perspectives and, like, I don't know. <laughs> like it's it's just always been like super fascinating to me that way. Um as somebody who's been, you know, mid pack at Kansas and at the front of Kansas. Like it's at once like a very different experience and like the same exact thing in a way. Um but as far as like dynamics go with the women's and men's being combined, um, I personally would be super bummed um to see a separation of fields. Um I think until, like, we literally have, like, 50% of the field as women, until there is, like, literal parity happening, then, like, separating would just be, like, as damaging to women as it would be to the race as a whole. Um, part of what makes it, like, so, so cool for me is that just I just get to feel like another person who's, like, a part of, like, a big thing. Instead of, like, you know, I have all these memories of showing up to, like, Cat 3 Road races, like, my first year. And there's, like four girls there and it's just like really tragic and like you it's just not the same experience um and it's never really going to be until we do have those numbers um I think all the like you know finer details of what's allowed what's not what's not allowed for like you know obviously there's huge discussion about like teams of men working for women um and there's women who have won Kansas that way um and really the only perspective I have right now is that like we just need to have transparency on what is going on Um, I don't care if a woman shows up with a team of men to work for her, if that's obviously what they're doing. Um, if they're in the same kit, if they're protecting her, if they're riding for her. Like, currently, that's totally allowed, um, and as long as it's allowed, like, I respect that decision. I would never want to do it, because it's like, I wouldn't get the same satisfaction out of that as I would out of, you know, winning on my own. But it's allowed, and so like, I can't really speak negatively about it if that's somebody's choice. Um, the only thing I do, like, trash talk, like, pretty seriously is when women, like, covertly have men working for them, which I see happen a fair bit. Um, and with some, like, fairly big-name riders who will, like, you know, have, like, a random dude who's just kind of, like, their bud during the race and looks out for them and, like, helps fix their flats or, like, pulls them along or whatever. And then, like, you know, at the end, like, you know, so-and-so can just, like, pretend they won, like, like, whatever it is on their own. Um, I think that's damaging to the sport and I think that's dishonest in a way. Um, and that's kind of what gets me <laughs> angry. but um I don't know. I think ultimately all these issues just kind of come down to a personal level where it's like I just wouldn't feel good like as a representative like as a representative of the sport or like as an ambassador like going about it in that way. And I think as long as like I don't know, that remains unnecessary, then it's not really too big an issue Mm -hmm. like as long as i can win kansas on my own then like what does it really matter
0: how did your life change after you won dirty kansas
2: um i mean in a very literal sense i especially coming into this season have just been able to um negotiate like enough money for myself that all i have to do this year is ride bikes wow Um. That's big. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, that's, like, the obvious, most immediate, like, coolest thing to come out of it is, like, all that i had been kind of, like, wishing for and being, like, maybe eventually or, like, somehow, like, this will happen. But if I balance it with something else and then, you know, like, work it this way, like, in five years, maybe I can spend a year just doing this. You know, like, all these, like, tangential things you think about, like, coming up through the sport, um, they just kind of all those conversations just ended and it was like okay wow like I'm doing this um and I think that's a lot of just right place right time for me um just being like I don't know still relatively new but with like most of a career potentially ahead of me and then just doing well like right when this sport is kind of experiencing this insane surge um I don't know everything just lined up and I don't know. I mean, we'll see how this year goes. Maybe I like absolutely tank and like, you know, everybody backs out and I have to, you know, go serve coffee again. But, you know, that was a good life, too. So
0: I'm going to interject with a little <laughs> editorial winning Kansas, not right place, right time. You crushed it. You deserve it. You deserve <laughs> your full time job as a cyclist. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it beforehand. And I think that's another interesting topic, though, that like, you know, it's cycling. Women don't get paid as much as men. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that's, and yeah, and it's it's gravel. Like everyone is out there to a certain degree, scrapping for sponsorships and individual deals. And yeah, you're a team, but you're also an individual. And the guys upstairs at the Wahoo House are in that sponsorship market too. And there's limited dollars. and And how do you make yourself unique and different mm-hmm. and build this portfolio? And obviously, you had the Kansas win. But what can you say about how that process has been for you?
2: Um, it's been. Um, encouraging mostly I would say Um, just coming up through the sport as a female like you do realize that a lot of the women you look up to if not all of them have day jobs have second jobs do other things Um, and like one aspect of that is really cool in that like these are like very multidimensional people they're not just like your classic like (laughs) male world tour pro roadie where like that's all they do and that's their whole identity and there's not really a story behind that um unfortunately, like, it's not really, like, a choice. It's, like, these women, like, have to have other jobs, even though, you know, they're technically, you know, performing at the same level and doing all the same things, but it's just, you know, I guess it's more of just, like, a reality you're faced with as a female in the sport. It's, like, okay, what else can I do that will still, like, let me pursue this kind of, like, far-fetched dream of, like, racing bikes as much as I can in, like, a bunch of places. Um, So... I don't know I think I was just like realistic about it like (laughs) I don't know if this does happen it's going to take a certain amount of time and a certain amount of like persistence and a certain like number of results um so mostly I've just been like very pleasantly surprised um I think things are slowly but surely shifting for the better in the industry um assuming you know the current trajectories stay in that people are realizing that like women do have really rad stories to tell and women are, like, you know, <laughs> going the same distance and, like, you know, doing doing as much. Um, and, yeah, I don't
0: know. Emily, you have a very rad story to tell, and I'm glad you were able to tell it to our listeners. Before <laughs> I let you go here, though, you need to tell us one last rad thing, which is give us, a, give us a, a taste of, like, one of your big, big training rides, like a favorite big, big training ride in California that you mm. do. Like, how long? Where is it? What do you – what kind of – hours mileage um, I know you're not a numbers person but uh <laughs> give us a sense for what you're able to do I'm
2: not um gosh there's so many I mean the coolest thing about these long long rides is that all of them stick in your memory you know as opposed to like the 20 to 50 kind of range of miles where it's like they all kind of merge into one ride especially if you know you're training in the same place or like going up the same mountain all the time it's like they're all wonderful but like None of them really stand out. Whereas, like, if you plan these, like, I guess for me, like, a long day is kind of between I would call like 120 to 160 miles. I rarely do like above like 150, 160. I don't think that's really necessary.
0: Most people rarely do above that at <laughs> home
2: I know, but it's like I'm not doing like Kansas distances on the regular. Um, I I do climb a lot. I really, really love climbing. Which I think is also why I was kind of surprised to win Kansas because I was like, "There are no hills here." But um, I uh, yeah, gosh, I mean, they're they're all stand out. Um, What's your
0: go to 160 mile route? Oh my god, it hurts just saying that.
2: <laughs> in the Bay Area, um, one fun thing I do like early season or have done the last few years is, um, Yuri Hauswald is a good friend of mine. He lives in Petaluma and he holds this like kind of weird underground road race there every year called the bantam classic and he's been doing it forever and he's just like you know it's it's really cool it's just a very like community oriented like cool event like mass start road race like men and women um like 50-ish miles some good punchy hills some really bad pavement like it's a good time um but it's in april usually and so it's kind of like i don't know not the last, but, like, a really good opportunity to kind of put it in those long days before Kansas, before those, like, long summer races hit. Um, so the last couple of years, I've ridden from the city to Petaluma, which is, like, 50-ish miles, and then raced his race, and then ridden home. Nah. <laughs> um, and, like, the last two years, like, everybody teases me about it. Everybody's like, everybody, yeah, you're crazy. Like, why are you doing this? Um, but then I won Kansas, and I think that kind of, you know, silenced him <laughs> as to, like, why I was doing that. But um, that, and then... Um, I don't know. Um, since moving to Truckee a lot of my rides have been kind of like longer in time but shorter in distance which I think is also really really important just learning to kind of like grind things out and go slow and like embark on days that like I don't know where a lot of it's up in the air like you're on roads you haven't seen before or trails that like may or may not exist. Um, that's all really cool for me. Um, then most recently, I guess um, I did Coast Ride, which is this big ride from SF to Santa Barbara that I do every year over three days, and it usually just like goes on pavement down the one, um, and it's like 130-ish miles each day. But the middle day this year, <laughs> there's this trail that I absolutely love, like an inland Big Sur, kind of like Ventana Wilderness, um, Santa Lucia Mountains area. Um, I talked to other of my. <laughs> really rad like dumb friends into doing it with me and we um headed south out of um we started in Monterey that day headed south went out Carmel Valley Road hopped on this crazy trail climbed up and up and up and up and then descended on the other side and then like went out to the coast and continued south to um, Morro Bay um and that took 12 and change hours and was 170 miles oh and
0: with some climbing
2: 14,000 feet of climbing ouch <laughs> but, like, but like, I have to. Like, I have no choice. It's, like, these races just keep stacking up. Like, this year we have Leadville, like, next to SBT Gravel. And we have Dirty Kansas, And then, like, a week after I'll be at Lost and Found. It's just, like, knowing what's ahead of you and doing your best to... I don't know get psyched
0: (laughs) well Amity I appreciate you cutting some time out of your 160 mile rides to talk with us today uh listeners if you are lucky enough to run into or ride up next to Amity Rockwell out there um you are in the presence of greatness because that is (laughs) utterly utterly amazing thanks so much for coming on the podcast
2: of course anytime